Welcome to AMDG. I'm Eric Clayton. As a graduate of a Jesuit university, I've certainly been told to go and set the world on fire. I've walked down halls lined by the text of St. Ignatius's famous prayer for generosity, and my wife and I were so moved by Pedro Arupe's well-known prayer about falling in love that we had it read at our wedding. Little did I know that all of it was, for lack of a better term, fake news. My guest today is Father Bart Geiger of the Society of Jesus. A research scholar at the Institute for Advanced Jesuit Studies, assistant professor at the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College, and the general editor of Studies in the Spirituality of Jesuits. He's also the editor of a forthcoming new edition of the Autobiography of St. Ignatius Loyola. But I came to know Father Giger through reading some of his works, essays that thoroughly take apart some of my Ignatian misconceptions. As Bart will discuss, and as you might have already guessed, some of the most famous lines attributed to St. Ignatius or Father Arupe are misattributed, if they were ever uttered at all. Now, if you're like me, you might say, well, who cares? Prayers that teach me to be generous and to serve God are good, right? Falling in love with a God who is love is a beautiful thing to read at a wedding. No? Well, it's complicated. And that's what Father Giger and I get into. Remember, if you like what you hear, share our podcast with your friends and leave us a nice comment. All right, Father Bart Giger, thank you for joining us on AMDG today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, all things considered. Staying safe in the quarantine? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm getting to know my Jesuit brothers in a quality way I never have before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but much better than you ever hoped you like that, right? Good. Well, we're excited to have you join us today um, and to talk a little bit about your work and, and um, your research. And uh, I know that uh, your research first came across my desk because um, it kind of popped a, a few bubbles I had, had had in my mind about the life of Ignatius and, and things right. he had said and, and done. And so I wonder if you could give us just the elevator pitch to um, about your work. Sure. Uh, this is some work that I'm doing on the side, actually. I wouldn't call it my principal focus, but something that I've been doing for the last 10 years is researching uh, common myths and misconceptions about St. Ignatius Loyola. Uh, and I was surprised myself to find out over time just how many there are. Uh, and some of these myths and misunderstandings go back to the beginning, 500 years, 500 years ago. Uh, where a lot of them have emerged only, say, in the last 50 or 60 years. And what intrigues me is not simply that these myths exist, because they exist with any saint, really, who's you know accumulated a tradition. But uh, I think the myths also reveal something about ourselves. Why do we choose to perpetuate these particular ideas, even if the evidence isn't really there for them or things like that? There's always a motive. There's always a... Um, a frame of reference of some kind that we're calling upon. And so that's what I'm trying to draw attention to as well. What are our preconceptions about theology or spirituality when we repeat these myths? What um, what are some of the most misquoted or misrepresented aspects of Ignatius's life? Give us a few examples just to, to kind of ground our conversation. Sure. Uh, I mean, just some garden variety ones that get repeated all the time. You know, we have no evidence that Ignatius ever said, go and set the world on fire. 
you know. No. And, 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 <laughs> oh man. <laughs> uh, we have we have one little shred of circumstantial evidence, which actually is pretty weak. I, I would argue that it can't really be trusted, but. Uh, but yeah, but that that one that particular myth goes back to the early 1600s. So that's an old one, you know. Uh, the word magus that we hear so often today, you know, the magus. Ignatius never spoke using that. I mean, that was a common word in Latin that he would have used a lot, but he never spoke about the magus as an aspect of his spirituality, uh, which is something that a lot of people don't realize, you know. Um, and uh, those are probably the two of the biggest ones. Uh, but there are quite a few. So how, you know, just, just, just take one of those or, or, or a different one. How do these things get started? Where, where do mm -hmm. these, you know, uh, myths that are rooted in, in, in kind of strange Latin words, you know, catch hold in our, in the imagination of our church, you know, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, where do they begin? Mm -hmm. Boy, some, <laughs> a lot of them seem to originate from passing comments that people made a long time ago, which just kind of seemed to snowball over time. So for example, there's a common myth that after Ignatius had his spiritual conversion, when he was living in the village of Manresa, that he spent about eight or nine months in a cave, uh, kind of living like a hermit in a cave and writing the spiritual exercises. And even to this day, at this day, the Jesuits in Spain, we have a very large church over the side of this cave. Maybe you've been there. And the, there's a chapel that's actually built on the inside of the cave. Uh, what many people don't realize is that Ignatius never mentioned a cave at all. Uh, during his lifetime. And the earliest reference that we have at all that Ignatius was in that cave was 70 years after he had died, when some people who were being interviewed for his beatification made a passing comment that, uh, uh, oh, we think he traveled to this cave once in a while to pray. Uh, and so, uh, and then it just kind of took off from there, actually. And I think in that particular case, especially at that time period in history, Catholics were very entranced by the stories of the desert fathers and mothers, saintly men and women who did live in caves mm. in the 400s and the 500s. And so I think for the Catholics of the uh, 1600s, late 1500s, they would have found attractive the idea that Ignatius had lived in a cave. And so it kind of runs from there. So it's that I, it's idea of kind of like the the spiritual good that you are assuming or you you think is good you're you're projecting back onto onto this holy figure. I you know I wonder in um you said seventy years and so I'm thinking about the amount of time between when Jesus died and when the scriptures were written. You know and I think mm -hmm. what was the the closest was ninety years. Is that true? Um, so in, uh, in thinking Gospel of Mark probably fifty or sixty years. I think. Yeah. Okay, so so still a number of years. So I'm I'm thinking, you know, thinking about scripture in general. I know this isn't Ignatius's life in particular, but in scripture in general, you know, the scriptures we have were selected right by someone because they were useful for teaching the faith. You know, but they often contradict you either in tone or in content or in emphasis. Here, I'm I'm thinking of you know Paul having no horse. Um, you know, where where do we, you know where where should we draw the line between historically factual and spiritually useful in scripture mm -hmm. and holy writing? And particularly, even just thinking about Ignatius in the cave, that I find. That that image very powerful and helpful to me. Um, right. So, how, where is that line drawn, and and what's the harm in having something um, you know historically incorrect but spiritually useful? 
Okay, very good. If you don't mind, I'll just jump to that main question. If we start to get Go into the it. history of scripture, that's going to start getting really honest. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, um, cut to it. Yeah. Well, we have to make a couple important distinctions, and one is that something can be a very legitimate spiritual idea, even if so-and-so didn't actually say it. So even if St. Ignatius did not say X, that does not mean that X cannot be a powerful spiritual idea that might be worth following. Okay. Nevertheless, it's important to distinguish and say, but Ignatius himself didn't say that because when each the beauty of the communion of saints in the Catholic faith is that each saint has kind of a distinct spirituality, a way of approaching the faith and living the faith. Uh, and they're beautiful in themselves, and yet it's important not to muddle them, so to speak. We want to keep mm. their distinctiveness, all right? Uh, obviously, there's going to be that common thread of their Catholic faith. And yet we want to be clear if we start muddling and putting words into Ignatius's mouth, even though they might be beautiful spiritual ideas in themselves, if we claim that he said them when he didn't, then we might be muddling our understanding of his particular approach to the faith, his particular spirituality. And so that's why we'd want to keep those distinct. Right. Interesting. That makes that makes a lot of good sense. And, and it's 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 a respecting of the of the community of saints more so than it is um, because all those truths are there. If we look for them, uh, if we delve deep enough. But are we um, are we respecting individual lives? Mm -hmm. um, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I you know, I, I think I came to your work in this in this line of thought in this era of fake news. Right. Um, yeah. so I wonder, you know, which which just kind of I don't know if it's just adds a line of irony or, or what, but I I wonder how the issues that you're working with um, become further complicated in this in this moment. Um, do right. you do you find that it, um, you know, undercuts the authority of, 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 of teachings or, or everyone goes, oh, well, are you sure that's fake? How, how, what kind of reactions do you get? I would say that in my experience, it only exacerbates exponentially a problem which has always been there. You know, there's always been a problem with misquotes and people being misquoted for centuries. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it is so possible with the push of a button like on Twitter or Facebook or other social media, you can claim that Ignatius said something and then post it online and it reaches thousands of people instantly and then they copy it and send it to someone else. So we have a huge problem right now. If you go online, you'll find all these quotes by Ignatius that he supposedly said that have only been spread in the last couple of years because people wrote something on Facebook or whatever, and then claimed that Ignatius said it, you know? Uh, and so, and, you know, to be honest with you, a lot of these supposed quotes are pretty, uh, I would call superficial. Uh, mm. And so it doesn't do Ignatius a lot of favors to claim that he said them. Uh, I think one of, one of the claims was, you know, an Indian Jesuit had posted an observation on Facebook and he wasn't claiming that Ignatius said it. He was just saying it on its own. It was something to the effect of whatever you're doing right now, whatever it is that gives you pleasure, that's what God is calling you to do or something like that. And then someone cut and pasted that and claimed that Ignatius said it. <laughs> it's, for the last several years, it has spread like wildfire. You'll find it all over the Internet, you know. And so. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's the antidote to that? How do, how do you how do you combat that? I, you know, I I don't know to be, I wish I had the answer to that because, you know, I can put out, you know, I can try to get this information out there, but 
in the big scheme of the modern world, I'm just one more talking head. Why should anyone believe me as opposed to anyone, anyone else that they're reading out there? You know, and, and that's the challenge that we face right now, isn't it? In the 21st century, who to believe? Yeah, I, I wonder, <laughs> are there any lessons that we can take for our kind of national and global discourse from from your work? Anything that you, <laughs> you think about? <laughs> I know it's a big question. <laughs> Here's a road I don't want to go down. <laughs> uh, well, um, I am well, that's such a big question. I would simply say that I spirituality and like politics, I think, has the tendency to lapse into a lot of jargon, which we use all the time, and perhaps never really stop to reflect, well, what does that actually mean? Or where did we get that? Or are we simply assuming that's true? Okay. Um, and so in that sense, um, going back to the sources and really taking a close look at the kind of language that we use I think can be a real eye-opening experience. It certainly has been for me. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Good research and 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 challenging kind of the why of of why we're we're sharing these quotes. I exactly. I find that um so often with uh, especially with social media, you know, you, you just you have that one quote that works. It looks good on a graphic, and you just keep sharing exactly. it, right? Um, exactly. And that brings me to uh, the Arupe prayer, which is which is not that right. Um, uh, right. Um, fall in love and you'll change everything. I, um, it, you know, I think that's that's it's that's misattributed, right? And um, uh, but like I used it in my in our in our wedding it was part of our wedding. So mm-hmm. I I imagine people are are hurt or or feel personally attacked at times by your work, um, you know, by this research. So how do you respond to people that just want to share a nice image or or just want to you know say this is the this is the reading I want to use at my wedding? You know, stop stop telling me who said it. <laughs> what's your what's your response? <laughs> well, and I do get you know I say people have been pretty good with me actually. I haven't gotten any real serious pushback back yet. But I do get vibes once in a while from people along the lines of what you said, where it kind of uh, disappoints them or upsets them. Maybe they've kind of had their heart set on a particular prayer. You know, another one is uh, that very beautiful prayer that we hear all the time where Ignatius says, Lord, teach me to serve you. Uh, d- 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 how does that go? Um, not to count the cost. Uh, to, serve, to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost to fight and not to heed the wounds, you know. Now, in reality, that prayer was written by a French Jesuit in the late 1800s, but it's been attributed to Ignatius ever since, you know. And when I tell people that he didn't say that prayer, uh, they get a little upset once in a while. And uh, But my response is this, Eric. I would say, you know, the, the content of the quotation, the prayer itself, or the quote from Arupe, still has meaning and significance in itself. I mean, if if someone likes a particular quote for what it's communicating, then great, go ahead and use it. There's nothing, you know, to say that Arupe didn't say it is not to undermine the content of the quotation itself. You know? Right. Uh, but if we start willfully attributing certain ideas to people, because we wish they would have said it, I start. I think we start going down a dangerous road if we start taking that approach to things. 
What's interesting too is that it seems to me that um, uh, you know rather than there have been you know being two great Jesuits that we should quote you know Ignatius and Arupe, then suddenly we, we realize that there's a whole bunch of other Jesuits and and yeah. or, or just good holy people that have said really impactful things and and maybe we should we should you know again back to that community of saints idea that that there is a, a wealth of spiritual wisdom um, across the globe you know that we should be. Um, kind of delving into, right? Do, do you find that there's a, a, a again, again, a, a tendency to, to create superheroes and, and, and leave everyone else behind? Well, it's funny you mention that, Eric, because you put your you put the nail on uh, hit the hammer on the nail. What's a metaphor I'm looking for there? That I would argue that one of the biggest misunderstandings of Ignatius today is that without realizing it necessarily, we have turned him into this superhero who created this entire spirituality on his own based on his personal experience when he was alive, his personal experience of God, when in reality, almost everything that he was teaching had been well established in the tradition for many centuries before him. And he was consciously drawing from that tradition. And he would have actually been mortified if if he knew if he thought that Jesuits were saying that he came up with this on this on his own, you oh. know. And so I would argue that one of the primary ways we misunderstand a lot of what Ignatius was saying is because we fail to understand that tradition that he was drawing from. Interesting. And and also I I, I know I've I've read a piece of yours where I think you you delve into back to that kind of the prayer of generosity that is, is falsely attributed mm-hmm. to Ignatius. Um, it, you know we. We both misunderstand the tradition, but then we misunderstand that person's spirituality too, right? Because it wasn't exactly. didn't Ignatius live a different kind of a way or encourage his Jesuits to do something different than to give and not to count the cost? That's exactly right. As I would say, you know, some quotes are harmless enough. You know, Ignatius didn't say go and set the world on fire, but okay, that I mean, no, no big consequence there one way or the other. But there are certain other misquotes that I would argue really do m- misinterpret or misrepresent his fundamental values. Now, it doesn't mean that they're objectively wrong. It just means they're not his spirituality. So, for example, Ignatius was very, very clear that he wanted Jesuits to accomplish the most good that they could for God over the course of a long, healthy lifetime. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ignatius says, look, I'm dumping all this money into your education and your formation. I don't want you burning yourself out in three or four years. Right. I want to squeeze 60 years of service out of you. All right. And so <laughs> he, he, he would tell Jesuits, he say, I want you to take a vacation every year. I want you to make a retreat every year. If you can get three squares a day, sleep six or seven hours a night. Uh, you know, none of this flogging yourself and fasting for a week at a time, you know. Um, and so this idea of to give and not to count the cost to fight and not to heed the wounds, Ignatius would say, no, I want you to take care of your wounds. Patch yourself up and be healthy so that right. you can go back out there. Um, now, does that mean that the spirituality you represented in that prayer is wrong? No, it's not a matter of being wrong. It's a, it's, a, it's a different way of serving God. It's a different spirituality, but it's not Ignatius. Interesting. And I mean, it, it seems just, you know, living in this pandemic moment, it seems to have really immediate impact because if, if a Jesuit, or you can just think of it, a Jesuit or, or, or a collaborator, someone, you know, living out the Ignatian tradition were to read that prayer, they might say, oh, I, I need to still go out to the mission sites. I need to be in the streets. You know, I, I have to, you know, give enough to not count the costs, you know, fight not to eat the wounds. 
and, and get sick and die if that's if that's what happens, right? As opposed to what you're describing from Ignatius sounds more like, well, you know, are we need to we need to be able to serve others? I think as, as Father General was saying a few days ago, um, right? We we need to to survive so that we can help others survive, right? We need to we need to exactly. help others thrive, which which is you know certainly all bound up in our in our larger religious tradition, but but it, but feel very different. Um, within the Ignatian tradition. Is that is that true? Is that fair? Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, Ignatius, you know, if we are going to use that word, the Magus, all right, I think in, in a way that was authentic to Ignatius, and he says this very clearly in the Jesuit Constitutions, you know, if you want to follow an Ignatian spirituality, that always means looking at the big picture. You know, you've heard the expression, uh, think globally, act locally. Yeah. That, that actually is a pretty good description of Ignatian spirituality, Okay. Ask yourself, look at the big picture, which of all the good things that I do, could be doing for God, which ones are going to uh, help me bring the most people that I can to God? And then do those and then have the courage to let the other good things go. Mm-hmm. And if you try to do everything, you run yourself into the ground and then you're no good to anybody. So paradoxically, serving the greater glory of God means that sometimes you have to say no to good people who ask for your help. You know, and that can be very hard to do. Very hard to yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, it definitely adds a, a, another and important layer to Ignatian spirituality in general that might have been missed altogether if, if you feel like, oh, no, I just got to drive myself into the ground until I got nothing else to give. Exactly. And there were actually many young Jesuits when Ignatius was superior general who wrote to him, wrote letters, what you just said. Oh, your father, you'll be so proud of me. I'm, you know, I'm working until I drop and that kind of thing. And he wrote them letters chastising them. <laughs> you, know, like, you, know, like, you know, go home and get some sleep. You know, you know, Now, a very concrete way in this era of the coronavirus where this kind of tension manifests itself is Probably many of us are familiar with the name Aloysius Gonzaga, mm-hmm. who was a, a young nobleman. Uh, if I remember correctly, he was about 26 or 27, who joined the Jesuits. And the plague was ravaging Europe at this time. The plague was ravaging Rome. And he, what he would do is leave the Jesuit community and go and work with the plague victims. And every time you see these pictures of Aloysius Gonzaga, these paintings, he's always very tenderly holding a plague victim, right? And so he, and then he himself caught the plague and died of the plague, right? And so he's kind of held up as this model of holiness for emulation. But what's the what's the part of the story that you never hear about? Well, it's that he every day he went back home to his Jesuit community and ended up infecting other guys in the house. Oh. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. There were there were Jesuits who were getting sick and dying. All right. Oh. In the Jesuit community. I'm not saying he necessarily was one who infected them, but but Jesuits were getting sick and dying in, in the Jesuit communities. And the superiors are very reluctant to let their men go out and help the plague victims, because, again, it was that thing that in the long run, we're going to be able to do more good for God if our men stay alive you know, yeah. in the, here and now. You know, so it's a hard decision. It's a hard decision to make, but it's a very Ignatian decision. Yeah. And and, I, and with that story, you know, I, it was always hard to, to hold up. You know, our tradition is one of, of martyrs. Right. But but mm-hmm. it was also hard to uh, to take these stories out of context and um, looked at through the full 
you know view of the of the tradition that it is interesting to to to, to think more about. I, I want to ask a, another question about tradition, um, and this again comes from from something uh, you wrote. Uh, so I hope, hopefully you can flesh it out better than I can summarize it. But um, I deny but, everything. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's smart. Um, so so you you noted right that um, that Nowen, Henry Nowen and and Thomas Merton have injected new perspectives and ideas into Ignatian spirituality, and I think the example you used was this idea of desires, right? Um, right. Desires as as the origins of desires versus the objects of desires, which I hope you can delve into a little bit more after I ask this question. But um, right. So while while not perhaps intended by uh, you know by Saint Ignatius and, and others who who were crafting Ignatian spirituality over over time, right? Is this not a natural development of Ignatian spirituality, keeping it relevant okay. and reflective of modern times and needs? Right. Okay. Uh, just to kind of break open what you were asking about, just for those who may not be as familiar with this question, uh, many, many, probably the great majority of books that you read today on Ignatian spirituality will use language like um, trying to f locate one's deepest desires or most authentic desires, um, uh, things of that nature. And what they will very often say is once you have located your deepest desire, you know, maybe it's to get married or to be a priest or to be a doctor, whatever it might be, then that's God calling to you in that deep desire. Okay. Well, the thing is, Ignatius never used that language, anything of that sort. Okay. Identify your deepest desire or something like that, or authentic desire. That language comes from, as you just said, uh, Father Henri Nouwen and uh, Father Thomas Merton. And their spiritualities, their books on spirituality were very, very popular in the mid and late 1900s. And so a lot of Catholics, either consciously or unconsciously, start absorbing those ideas into Ignatian spirituality. Right. The problem is that's like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Hmm. Again, you're talking about two. Uh, you're talking about two very different spiritualities. Okay. So again, it's not that there's anything nece necessarily wrong with that idea. I would say, but it's not Ignatian. And so the difference is this. And I would just, oh, just I would just add for listeners that, that neither Nowen nor Merton were Jesuits, right? Merton correct. was a yeah, Trappist right. monk, and Nowen was, uh, was he in an order? I don't even know if he was in an order or not. Uh, diocesan, if I remember correctly. Okay, all right. So, so both would have been, Greece, yeah. both have been kind yeah. of outsiders to Ignatian spirituality in, in some ways. That's right. That's right. Sorry, That's right. Go on. And, uh, so yeah, the basic idea is that for Ignatius, what he actually said was, you know, Today, we tend to think of like choosing a vocation in terms of personal fulfillment. What's going to make me happy? What's going to make me most authentically me? Okay. Well, that's kind of a 20th century psychology that we're superimposing on Ignatius. What Ignatius believed, and he's drawing from the tradition here, is that happiness is a choice that we make. I can be happy being a priest. I can be happy being married. I can be happy doing all kinds of different things. All right. Happiness is a choice. The only question I need to worry about is, in light of my gifts, limitations, and circumstances, which of these good options before me is going to enable me to make the biggest impact on God's people over the course of a lifetime, right? Mm. Ignatius said that's what we should be asking. Now, the answer is not going to be the same for everybody because we come from very different contexts, right? Uh, but Ignatius would say that's a question that all of us should be asking. That's what he meant by the greater glory of God. So it's a, what's that objective truth out there. This is what's going to help me serve God's greater glory. Where today, 
as a result of kind of 20th century philosophy, what existentialists said in the 20th century is that it doesn't matter what you believe as much as the fact that you believe something passionately. Okay. Mm-hmm. Be a person of great passion. Be a person of great desires. What it is you believe or desire is kind of secondary. That you are a passionate person is the most important thing. Okay. That was kind of the big creed of the early 20th century. And again, that gets superimposed onto Ignatius. So that today, when you read books on Ignatian spirituality, they'll say things like, well, find out that one thing you're passionate about, and that's God's will for you. Okay. Uh, Which, again, it might be a legitimate spirituality in itself, but that certainly is not what Ignatius said. And what that means is you will come to a very different discernment. Whichever one of those two approaches to discernment you take could lead to very different conclusions. is there so I mean I know this is gonna be a simplified question, but is it is it bad? Is is this bad that this has happened? Bad's probably the wrong word, or is this a natural evolution of of a tradition of a spirituality? Um, where, where do these things? When do these things stop evolving? Um, or, 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 or do you have to? I mean, these are two non Jesuits we're kind of thinking about, right? Is it is it? Um, you know, do you have to be like in the club to be able to write the next chapter? Um, how, how does it how do we think about spirituality as both something that's alive, but also something that's that is firmly, firmly rooted in the right. experience of, of the of the one right. it's named after? Right. That <laughs> that is the great. I mean, that's the great mystery of everything. Right. That, that goes to our Christian faith, Catholic faith in general is, you know, keeping it rooted in the tradition and yet adapting for the present needs. Uh just to keep it simple, what I would say is this. Yeah, obviously, we cannot cut and paste Ignatius whole cloth into the 21st century. We live in a very different cultural context. Um, and so we need to be able to adapt it in ways, absolutely, uh, that respond to these new needs. What, And I think that there are certain ways that we've done that. Okay, like so, for example... Uh, we've heard of this prayer called the examination of conscience or the examen, which is very popular in Ignatian spirituality now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Ignatius talks about that prayer 500 years ago, what he's thinking about is every day you do a mental inventory of all the different ways that you've sinned or, or committed some vice with the intention of getting rid of them later. Uh, whereas today we take that same prayer and we talk about it in terms of where has God's been speaking to me in my day? Okay, so it's not the emphasis is not so much on sin. Where did I screw up? But where is God talking to me? Okay. Now I would argue that is a very legitimate and authentic updating of that examined prayer. That that actually dovetails very nicely with other things that Ignatius said and did. Okay, other aspects of his spirituality. So I think if Ignatius were here with us right now, he would look at. And we can thank Father George Ashenbrenner for that shift. He wrote an article on that in the nineteen early nineteen seventies. And I think if Ignatius were to see that today, he'd be like, "Yeah, that's right. I can go. You know, I'm on board with that." Okay. So, uh, but um, for Ignatius, for the idea that you make every decision based on the greater glory of God, what is going to draw more people to the Father, all things being equal, uh, is absolutely fundamental to his spirituality. It runs through everything in his writings. Um, and it's the absolute core of what Ignatian discernment is all about. And so any description of Ignatian discernment, which doesn't take that into consideration, 
I would argue is fundamentally an Ignatian. And it's, it's interesting that that, I mean, that's now been, I don't want to say returned to the center of Jesuit life, but in, in many ways now with the new, with the apostolic preferences, right? That idea of how are we leading people to God? Um, and, and even when, when, the, when the Pope, when Pope Francis reviewed those apostolic preferences, right? He said, this is the, this is key without this, everything else falls apart. Do you see this yeah. as um, um, a returning to this, this, this essential piece of, of Ignatius spirituality, or um, are we, are we seeing it in a new way? How, how did you, how do you respond to that? Um, that the society. No, I think you know. I have. I wasn't privy to the actual discernment of those who you know who made those final decisions. But um, from what I understand, those decisions are very. Those preferences are very much identified in light of where is the more universal good served. You know, to put it in in crude terms, where are we going to get the biggest bang for our buck? <laughs> and. For Ignatius, the discernment of God's will, we're never choosing between a good and a bad thing. Because Ignatius is supposing if we already know something's bad, then we shouldn't be doing it. Uh, discernment of God's will means we have three or four good things we could be doing for God, but we can't do everything. So which one are we going to prefer or choose and then have the courage to let the other ones go? And these apostolic preferences of the society are a way to try to get the society, I think, thinking in those terms that this is where we need to start, all else being equal, focusing in these directions, because it's going to make that bigger impact. Right. That makes good sense. Um, I want to uh, just kind of as we as you wrap up our conversation, I want to really zero in on um, misunderstandings of, of discernment in the Ignatian tradition. Because I, I think, you know, I, I went to a Jesuit school. Many of my friends went to Jesuit schools and, and discernment is, is key. Right. Learning about Ignatian discernment. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, um, you know, it has a big impact on the way we make decisions. Uh, but how does a misunderstanding of Ignatian discernment impact people and their decision making and probably more centrally in their understanding of God? Because because that can lead to right. frustration, right? With with God, uh, so right. what reflections do you have on that? Uh, two things I'd like to share with you in that regard, and one is, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I was reviewing a book written by a Jesuit. Now he's passed away since then, but uh, written by a late Jesuit, in which he wrote in there that Ignatius invented discernment. Right? Mm -hmm. and I almost had a heart attack because that's like saying Ignatius invented prayer. Right. <laughs> discernment is a practice that goes back 2000 years. And even before Christians, the ancient Jews were practicing it. So one big misconception about discernment is that there's actually two different kinds. And we tend to mush them together without realizing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And one is the discernment of spirits. And that is we're trying to identify who is speaking to me. OK, which spirit is speaking to me? Is this in this emotion or this thought or this idea that keeps coming to me? Is this God trying to tell me something or is uh, is this my own human thinking, my own baggage or fears or whatever it might be? Or is this the evil one, the enemy who's trying to confuse me in some way? And so the discernment of spirits, and there's actually techniques and tips, there's a whole list of techniques that Ignatius provides, but they're rooted in the tradition about how to do that. Identify who is this voice that I'm hearing. Okay. Mm. And so discernment of God's will is about you're not mm. asking the question who, but what? What is it that I'm going to do in this situation? Okay. Uh, what am I going to choose to do for God? The the distinction would be like um you have a bunch of people coming over to your house for dinner. You need to cook something, right? What are you going to cook? You have to make that decision. But before you can even make that decision, you first have to look into your pantry and see what ingredients you've got. 
right? <laughs> and are these good ingredients? Are they healthy ingredients? You know, and once you've determined what's in your pantry, then you can make the decision about what you're going to cook. And it's the same thing in discernment. Discernment of spirits is I'm kind of analyzing my mental pantry, all the thoughts and desires and feelings, which ones are good that I want to use that are from God or which ones are maybe from the enemy, throw those out. Okay. <laughs> and then once I've got all that sifted, then I can make the decision about what I'm going to do, how I'm going to act. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, no, no. Uh, but that I, but I think that, that cooking analogy. So um, the second thing is this, you know, one of the reasons why I would argue that it's important to get Ignatius right on this issue. And I, I, I fell into this trap myself today when it comes to discerning God's will. What is it that God is calling me to do? We tend to have this idea or presumption that God's got a very specific thing in mind that he wants you to do. He wants you to get married to this particular person and, you know, do this particular job and have this many kids and whatnot. And when you look at discernment that way, it becomes a matter of let's try to figure out or guess what God is thinking. Right. And right. We better hope we better hope we get it right, because if we don't get it right, you know, if God's got that one thing in mind I'm supposed to be doing and I get it wrong, I'm going to be unhappy the rest of my life. Right. Right. And what that what that does is people become paralyzed with fear. They're afraid to make decisions. And that's what the way that I was when I was a young man thinking about entering the Jesuits. I kept saying to God in prayer, look, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'm willing to play ball with you here. Just give me a clear sign that this is what you want me to do. And but that sign never came. And so I'm getting angry and I'm getting frustrated. And, I'm, you know, um, and so one Jesuit friend I know likes to make jokes about a religious order called the Oblates of Perpetual Discernment because they can never make a decision. But the problem with that is that what does God really want? You know, imagine a wife who says to her husband, Sweetheart, when the last kid leaves the house, what would you like to do? How would you like to spend the second half of our life as a married couple? And imagine he says to her, oh, whatever you want to do, sweetheart, it's fine with me. I'll do it. And she says, well, yeah, but I want to have a conversation about this. What are you thinking and feeling? And he says, really, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want to do, I'll do it. Okay. Well, on the one hand, it sounds like he's saying all the right things, right? That's in the husband playbook, you know, make the wife happy, right? That kind of thing. So from his perspective, he probably thinks he's being noble. But in reality, he's not having that conversation with her. He's afraid to have that conversation with her. What she wants is to talk with him and find out, you know, what are her husband's desires? What are her husband's fears? That kind of thing. Okay. Um, now, apply that to prayer. Very often we say to God in prayer, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. What's that one thing I'm supposed to be doing? Right. When in reality, what God wants is that we have a conversation with him in prayer. And, you know, imagine God saying to you, look, there's four or five things you could do for me, all of which would be great, all of which you'd be successful and happy. Now let's kind of talk about what scares you about each option? What turns you on about each option? Which one do you think you're going to be able to serve me best? And have a courageous conversation with God in prayer, okay, about what that would look like. And that is what Ignatius meant by discernment. Yeah. And then once we've identified that option that we're pretty sure we think is going to serve God's greater glory, we offer it to God in prayer and we ask for those consolations to kind of confirm whatever it is that we've chosen. You know, um, beautiful. Yeah, oh, that that paints a very different 
image of a relationship with God, right? Because one is one is frustrating and, and one is is deepening and and empowering, it seems. It makes me think a little bit of, um, and you're on a college campus, right? So I, I imagine right. you have this experience some ways too, is kind of looking out at the current state of, of dating with, with um, and how... <laughs> I'm going to bring it around. I'm going to bring it around. Um, how there's so many, um, there's so many options, right? There's so, there's so many options. There's, there's, you know, social media makes it so much bigger. Dating apps make it so much bigger. And, and you're paralyzed because you say, there's just, there's just too much. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Um, and, and people can't make a decision to then move, move on to the next, or it's hard to make that decision. And I wonder then if in some ways the spirituality is informing how we relate to one another and, and, and how we commit to one another and vice versa, if, if, if we're kind of caught in a cycle in some ways. Well, it's funny, but it seems like you're reading my mind. I don't know if someone told you about this beforehand, but uh, one of the things I love preaching about and talking about with students are human commitments like marriage, long, long-term commitments, because the dynamics that we've just been talking about in prayer very much apply to married relationships as well and dating relationships, and that God wanted it that way. You know, he creates marriage as an image of his relationship with the church for a reason. There's a parallel there, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, I've had students in my office crying any number of times because, you know, their boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, you're better off without him, but I can't say that, right? <laughs> I mean, you can, but I, I can't say that, but, it, um, but what, I, what I tell my students very often is I say there is no soulmate. There's mm-hmm. not that one person that's going to make you happy. I said, no matter who you marry. There will be times when this person drives you up the wall. There are be times when you're bored to tears, you know, and that is going to apply no matter who you marry or what vocation you choose or anything. Uh, that's just the nature of human existence. You know, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters calls that the law of undulation, that we're going to have those peak moments and those down mm-hmm. moments, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I tell engaged couples all the time about spinach day. All right. And they say, what's spinach day? I say spinach day is that day when you wake up about you've been married 20 years. And I usually my students are women. So I'll say to the women, you, you've been married 20 years and you wake up one morning and you look over to your husband who's still asleep. And that six pack that you once loved on him has turned into a keg. Right. <laughs> and, and, and he's snoring like a jackhammer with breath like a Missouri mule, looking like the most unsexy thing in the world. And you look at this little piece of spinach stuck in his teeth, right? And at that moment, you're going to wonder what in the world you got yourself into, okay? And I tell them, I say, when that day comes, do not be afraid. And remember that Father Bart told you that day was coming, spinach day. <laughs> I, said, I said, that is the great and wonderful and terrible day when you learn that love is not an emotion. Love mm-hmm. is a choice that we make, right? Mm-hmm. Love is a choice that we make. And when you choose to love that person and say the works of love, the words of love to that person, even when you're not feeling it emotionally, you are going to grow in holiness and in your married life far faster than if you were doing it during the romantic times. The same thing applies to our spiritual life as well, Hmm. you know. that, so. that constant, a constant need to to recommit, to choose to whatever, whatever our life is, right? That that whatever we've discerned, we need to continue to commit to in in, in some way. Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. and yeah, exactly. And it's like you know, Saint Ignatius says he talks about this in the spiritual exercises all the time. Uh, when we commit ourselves to prayer, 
There will be times when it feels like God is right there with us and it feels we feel like a million bucks. And there'll be other days when we sit down to pray and we'll feel like he's a million miles away. And just to be prepared for that and to persevere in the prayer in both the good times and the dry times. Mm. Um, and just take that same logic and apply it to committed relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I think this is a good, good place to end. Father Bart, I appreciate your, uh, your wisdom, your insights. And, uh, and I, I look forward to reading more of your works. Oh, you're the one. I'm the, I'm the guy. I'm the one. So, so don't write well, too fast. So I can only read so fast. <laughs> thank you so much, Eric. I look forward to it. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook via facebook.com backslash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.